everyone, welcome to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding the light after perinatal trauma. This is your host, Kathy Garrett, birth trauma survivor turned podcast host. Today, we are joined by Nicolette Lewis, who experienced the nurse curse during labor with her second child, Alec. As a labor and delivery nurse, Nicolette knew things could go wrong during delivery, but was plagued by a nagging feeling that she was going to die in labor. She arrived into her room, which her co-workers beautifully decorated. She told her OB her explicit wishes and settled in with her fiancé and sister. Tune in to find out what went wrong and how Nicolette's team saved her and her son's life. Hi, Nicolette. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to sharing your story. We became Instagram friends, and now we're like real-life friends, which is fun. Yeah, it was, that's been a nice uh, a nice surprise, a nice gain. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let us start with an introduction about yourself and your family. Okay, so my name is Nicolette Lewis. I'm 37 years old. I am a labor and delivery nurse here in Northern Virginia at a level one trauma center hospital. I have two children. My daughter, Mina, is 10 years old, and my son, Alec, is 10 months old. <laughs> um, me and my fiance, I always call him my husband, but he's my fiance. We've like had a really long engagement, <laughs> but we've been together for 18 years now. Mm-hmm. We met, um, I was 19 when we met and he was 22. Um, I moved down to Virginia in 2006 and then he followed me in 2009. So we did a little bit of a long distance relationship for a little while. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been out of work since Alex's delivery, as you know, um, and I am returning back actually on Friday. So we'll dive into that a little bit more later in the episode, but let's first start with your birth story with Alec. Okay, so I'm gonna try not to make it like super duper long, but um my pregnancy for Alec was very easy. Um, just like my first pregnancy with Mm -hmm. Nina, I wasn't sick, you know, I was just tired and I, um, am also like was working as a nurse this time and working nights. So it took a little bit of a toll on me, um, on my energy levels, but I worked all the way up until Mm -hmm. a week before my due date. And I was, we were just getting ready for Alec. Everyone was, like, really excited, especially Mina. She wanted <laughs> to be a big sister since she's, like, five years old. Uh, and she wanted a little brother, so she was getting, like, everything she wanted. Um, I felt really, really empowered during this pregnancy. I worked with my OB. I was in the field. I knew way more than I did when I had Mina just 10 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago. So I felt like I really had control over certain things and, you know, obviously what my occupation, I had a different outlook on things and my OB was super cool, very Mm -hmm. flexible. So I just felt like really, really good about it. Um, It was supposed to be just a magical delivery, um, you know, surrounded by my peers and my OB was going to let Serge help 
deliver Alec, which was like incredible. I just like kept replaying in my head what that was going to look like and how hard I was going to be crying and you know, all, all those things. Um, surprisingly enough, I didn't go into labor on my own, which was a blessing in disguise. So I wound up being induced and I was very like, okay, I want to be induced on March 23rd because I want to make sure that my OB is there on the 24th and he's going to be the one delivering Alec and this is the anesthesiologist that's going to be on and that's great because that mm-hmm. anesthesiologist also did my epidural for Mina so I know how amazing his work is because I didn't feel nothing for Mina the night went really smooth I came in on the 23rd started me on side attack everything went really well I was just you know you know walking the halls with my coworkers, trying to like progress and stuff like that Morning came, my night shift girls said bye, my morning shift girls came in, and things were just kind of going kind of really slow, and I was like, oh, this is different, Mm. because Mina was very quick, and uh, I said, well, it's been 10 years, maybe my body, like, just forgot or whatever. (laughs) Eventually, you know, I started to feel uncomfortable, and I said, I definitely don't want to wait till I was at the point where I was with Mina when I asked for my epidural, because I was screaming like I I was like there's no way I'm gonna be able to wait 45 minutes for my epidural I'm like gonna die like this pain is I've never felt this pain before um so I was like I don't want to ask for it too early and I don't want to wait too late Mm -hmm. so my so because I was on Pitocin and I was like all right my OB came in he's like I want to check you and I was like no 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 you're not gonna check me (laughs) you're gonna check me after I have my epidural and then you're gonna break my water and then we're gonna have a baby and he's like okay he walks out, and, like, five minutes later, it was, like, the world went to, like, hell in a handbasket. I asked for my epidural. I got up. I went to the bathroom. I came back. Serge helped me to the bathroom. I came back. He was standing next to me. My sister was in the room also, and she was facing me, and I was getting the bed ready to um, to sit for the epidural because, like, Oh, I kind of couldn't get out of like work mode either. Yeah. It's like, well, I I could, you know, I can't like like log in and like <laughs> do my meds and stuff, but I could fix the bed at least, you know, for for Danielle, my my friend and and uh, nurse coworker. So I just went. I had the peanut ball, you know, peanut ball like they put between your yep. legs that were positioning. Um, I handed it to my sister and she was like, "What is this?" And I'm like. This is a peanut ball. We're going to be using this after I get my epidural because I won't be able to walk around and stuff. And she was like, oh, okay. I was like, you could put it over there. And I pointed to like where the baby warmer was in the little alcove. Mm-hmm. And then I just had these three really sharp pains to my left side, like right under my rib. And I screamed so loud. I almost didn't recognize my own voice. Like I knew wow. it was me, but it sounded like somebody else. I knew Mm. that something was, like, not, not right. Yeah. And I had, like, kind of fallen over onto the bed, and I was, like, holding my side and just, like, yelling, like, ow, 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 ow. And at some point, I guess Serge ran out to get my nurse, like, we need help in here or something. And everybody came running in, and I'm in my head, like, what, what is going on? Like, I feel dizzy. I feel like I'm going to throw up, like can't be my blood sugar. I've been eating this whole time. It has to be that it's my blood pressure. 
my blood pressure has to be dropping. But I'm standing there and I'm like, but why? Why is my blood pressure dropping? And the whole time, like I'm running all these things through my head, but I'm like really woozy. I'm uneasy on my feet. I'm holding on to my coworkers. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't see anybody. So I'm like holding my coworker. I'm like, I can't see you. I can't see you. They try to get me on the bed. I couldn't even, like, I just collapsed on the bed. I couldn't even lift my head up. I just felt like all my energy was, like, draining out of me. And they're like, come on, Nick, we got to get you on the bed. And I'm like, I can't move. And, like, just getting those words out was, like, like, my body felt like cement. (laughs) And even speaking was just, like, a struggle. And it was scary. Like, my eyes were open. I couldn't see anything. It was, everything was very pixelated and, like, a pinkish color, which was really odd. Um, So, Serge and Danielle had, like, lifted me up and put me on the bed. And they were doing all the things, you know, that we do when we're trying to get a baby's heart rate up because they couldn't find Alex's heartbeat. And I was, like, side to side, this, that. They're flipping me everywhere. They're calling the doctor in. And then I heard his heartbeat and it was so low. And I thought, I said, maybe it's mine. You know, like it could be mine, but I knew, you know, like deep in my heart that it wasn't. It was his. And I, and I didn't have to look at the monitors to know what it was. I know that sound. That's my job. I've heard it before. So it was really kind of ominous, like, oh gosh, something really horrible is happening. No matter what they were doing, it just wasn't helping Alec. And the doctor came in. wasn't my doctor because my doctor was back in a C-section. Um, it was a different doctor. And he came in. And he's like, hey, Nicolette. I'm like, do you know? We work together. It's me, Nicolette. <laughs> um, and I was just laying there, and all these things were running through my head, and he wanted to rule out an abruption because my stomach was very, very firm. Um, so he wanted to rule out an abruption. So he broke my water. It was only three centimeters. He broke my water. And if the fluid that came out was bloody, it was like, okay, instant abruption. We need to run back to a C-section, but it wasn't bloody. The fluid was clear. So it was kind of like, okay, well, this isn't an abruption. What is going on with this girl? Yeah. So I remember, now it's kind of like what happened first, you know, everything kind of happened really quickly and things kind of got mixed in together. But I remember hearing Serge like saying like, Nick, you're scaring me. Cause I kept telling them like, I can't breathe. And they were like, the doctor said, yes, you can. We have oxygen on you. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, like my throat feels like it's closing. Every time I lay down, I felt like I just couldn't breathe. And the mix of not being able to see, being so dizzy, feeling so weak, not feeling like I couldn't breathe. It was like, they say like when you're dying, your life flashes before your eyes. And I don't necessarily believe that that's what I felt, but I was taken to this one memory um, from nursing school. My professor, I remember her standing up in front of the room saying, if your patient tells you that they're dying, you need to listen to them. You need to believe them. And I was like thinking to myself, like I'm dying. Like, and I know I'm dying. 
and but they don't know I'm dying. I know I'm dying and I need to let them know that I'm dying. And I told you this before, um, my whole pregnancy, I had this really, really strong feeling that I was going to die in labor. Yeah. So once I felt those three pains, it was like, this is it. This, this is, oh my this goodness. is it. This is what's happening. Like, this is what I knew was going to happen. Mm -hmm. So I remember saying, I was like, Dr. Silas, I'm dying. And he said, no, you're not. And I said, yes, I am. And I remember holding, I was like holding on to the side rail of the bed and I turned over and I looked at my coworker and I could barely like see her through whatever was going on with my vision. And I said, again, I'm dying. And they put it FSE, which is a fetal scalp electrode. It kind of like, it's like a thumbtack almost. And it goes into the top of the baby's head to monitor mm -hmm. their heart rate accurately because they kept losing him on the external monitor. Okay. And so they put it on Alex's head and I heard his heart rate again. And I was like, oh my gosh, no, 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 God, please. No, no, no. And he said, Nick, if we can't get his heart rate up, we have to go back to the OR. And at this point, I'm like on my hands and knees, barely able to like keep myself up. And they had given me like terbutaline to stop my contractions. I was already bolusing fluids because I had asked for my epidural earlier. So it was like, what else? My fluids clear. They did this, they did that. Nothing's working. His heart rate was like in the 50s. A normal heart rate for a baby is 110 to 160. So he yeah. was in the 50s. Well. And he just said, that's it. We're going back. And I... I feel like I was screaming like, no, oh my God, no, no, no. But I know I wasn't because I didn't have the energy to do that. Mm -hmm. But I felt like maybe like my soul or something was screaming because we just, I just knew something was so terribly wrong and we were so close. Like if I, I was dying, then that means that my son was also dying. Yeah. So... They rolled me back, the, the rollback from my room to the OR. I mean, even I planned that, you know, I even planned that, like, just in case I'm like right there, the OR is right there. Um, They ran me from my room to the OR in like 30 seconds. My OB was waiting. Surge had said by the time they rolled me out, I was completely pale and my lips were starting to turn blue. Um... My OB, when I came in, started screaming, why is she gray? Why is she gray? And I remember thinking to myself, gray? What does that even look like? <laughs> how, does, how is someone gray? You know, like all these sarcastic thoughts going through my head while I'm like, oh, like I really don't feel good. And I remember looking at him and I said, I, Dr. Lampel, I can't see. I can't see. I can't breathe. Help me. You know, all the things. And they were trying to lay me back. But again, every time I laid down, I felt like I couldn't breathe. And obviously, mm -hmm. you know, I know why I was feeling that way now. But at that time, I didn't. So when they laid me back, I would shoot up. And they would lay me back and I would shoot up. And I kept fighting because I was trying to survive. Yeah. And the only way that I felt like I was going to live was if I was sitting up. And... My coworker, Danielle, she got really, really close to me, and she was like, Nicolette, you have got to lay down. You have to do this for Alex. 
And it's like, I knew what I was supposed to do, but my body was preventing me from doing that because it was in survival mode. Yeah. And then I just kind of, I say I gave up, but it's more like I gave in versus Mm -hmm. giving up because I knew that the only way that Alec could have a chance is if I just stopped. If I just let whatever was happening happen so that they can do what they had to do to get him out. Um, I never felt this like peace people say that you have with death or anything like that. I just kind of felt nothing. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. And I don't know if Alex is going to make it out either. So they put the, they had to put me under general because they had to work very quickly. Um, and I, the last thing that I heard was my doctor say she was afraid this was going to happen. Yeah. And then it was, and then it was blackness. And it turns out what had happened was, so he, he, he got Alec out in under a minute. So time from first incision to birth was un- was under a minute, which is remarkable. Wow. But it took in total 23 minutes. So Alec was without adequate blood flow and oxygen for t- 23 minutes. He came out. He was, I always get so emotional when I talk about Alec because I know what it looks like because I've seen it mm-hmm. at work. And then to think that that was also my son is like, it just breaks my heart. And I'm, I'm grateful that I wasn't awake for it as hard as it was to not see my child be born. Cause I know that I would have lost it. I would have absolutely lost it if I seen him, but he was born, um, limp, very pale. And he was not making any respiratory effort. He was not breathing on his own. He had a heartbeat. So his one minute APGAR was one. Um, and NICU works very, very quickly. We have a level four NICU at my hospital that has technology that other hospitals do not, does not have. And one of them is called Arctic Sun. So they started a passive cooling process on him. Basically when they took him to the warmer, it wasn't on, there was no heat on so that they can keep him cold. Um, they intubated him and sedated him and rushed him to the NICU. And Serge went with him. Um, he was seizing because with the with the lack of blood flow and oxygen, the brain is still making these, still firing off the neurons, and there is mm-hmm. no blood or oxygen there at like a health for like healthy brain tissue. So it's kind of like like firing off and misfiring, and then he's seizing continued seizures would cause even more, um, even a bit, even bigger lack of oxygen. So they sedated him and they put him into hypothermia so that his yeah. body could rest, wow. they lower his temperature so that the body could rest and recover and hopefully reverse or stop whatever damage could happen. Yeah. When my OB did the incision, he said that blood just poured, poured out of me. And he knew very quickly that this was not an OB 
problem. So he got Alec out and he immediately called trauma. Trauma came within two to three minutes. And they then cut me upwards, up my stomach till about two or three inches above my umbil uh my belly Maybe. button. I was gonna say umbilicus, but like for people listening, like that's what we do at work, umbilicus. <laughs> um they could not find the source of the bleed. There was just so much blood. They said when I was opened up, there was just a huge, like my entire abdomen was just a blood clot, one giant blood clot. And oh I just kept on bleeding. Um, there was a resident there, uh, Sebastian, and he just, when I tell you God <laughs> was at work that day, he, he really was at work that day. Um, they couldn't find the source. They kept packing and resuscitating me and packing, resuscitating. And he just out of nowhere was like, this reminds me of a uh, case study I read about a woman from my country. He's from Lebanon. Um, he said, unfortunately, her baby didn't make it. Check her spleen. And then directed trauma to my spleen. I only know this because the people that were in the OR, when they came to see me when I was extubated, told me all these things and I was like whoa um so he directed trauma to my spleen and it turned out that I had an undiagnosed splenic artery aneurysm that I most likely developed during pregnancy I had no signs I had no symptoms the only risk factor that I had was that I was pregnant um and it ruptured while I was in labor oh my god splenic artery aneurysm ruptures hold a 75% mortality rate for moms and a 95% mortality rate for the baby. And I didn't know those statistics until I was told, you're a miracle, your son's a miracle, you're a miracle, your son's a miracle. And I'm like, whoa, that is a lot to take in. Absolutely. Um, they had to take my spleen. And I get so upset because when I read my operative notes, my spleen was like fine. <laughs> you know, it was perfectly fine. And I tell Serge, like, why couldn't they just like reroute blood flow to my spleen? Like, why did they have to take my spleen? And he was like, Nick, they were working so hard to save your life. They weren't thinking about saving your spleen. They were thinking about saving you. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to kind of, I don't know if you've ever experienced that when I hear certain things like that. Or when my OB said there were like 25 plus doctors in the OR working to save your life. Or when my coworker told me I had no idea what was going on. All they, all they, all that they texted me was that you and Alec were alive. Like hearing those things, it seemed so, like I knew it was bad. Like I knew I was dying, but then like hearing it also confirming oh, yeah. was a, it's a very straight, I, I don't have the words to put it but it's a very strange feeling that's a good point I haven't really thought about what it has been like to work through the grief of I lost my uterus but and I did feel like my fertility was stolen and I don't I don't blame the OB who made that decision but it was taken and that is a decision regardless of the organ you're wonderfully and fearfully made in his image and then 
this horrible traumatic event almost cost you your life. And obviously, rationally speaking, heck yeah, I give my uterus up every day, yeah. anytime, any day. But no longer being able to bear children and have the normal, well, really just to be like everybody else is is really hard. Mm-hmm. And so I very much empathize with your thought of like, why couldn't they just reroute it? But Serge is right. Like, they're not thinking about your spleen. They're thinking about you as a a person. I've shared a couple times on the podcast how there was an AFE a couple of months before mine, and that mom did not survive. And she, apparently they did not do the hysterectomy right away. So when I had mine, my OB automatically was like, we're taking her uterus. Like, we're not even trying anything else. Because there are other AFE survivors who yeah. do, who are able to keep their uteruses. And they do go on to have subsequent pregnancies. But it's really crazy, especially feeling like all of these decisions are made for you and your body. It's really hard to surrender that control. And even I recently asked my husband, like, did you even give consent for that? And he was like, nope. The decision was just made, so it wasn't yeah. even his decision, so I can't even my, blame him. Yeah, my OB had come out, you know, there he came out, I was told by my sister, he came out a lot of times, and the first one was, I don't know if they are going to make it, and my sister was like, what is going on? How is the baby? He was like, I don't know. I don't know. He said, my job is to get the baby out, and I got the baby out. I don't know. Serge was just completely shut down. Like he was not hearing anything that my OB was saying. And he recognized that very quickly. So he was talking to my sister and my sister is not in the medical field, but her son, my nephew was diagnosed with brain cancer at 10. Oh my goodness. So she has since 2017 been dealing with, you know, doctors and hospitalizations and this and that. So she is, uh, got her head on straight in situations like this and you know that would have been me if it was her because you know that's my sister uh Serge was just like on the verge of losing almost everything so Mm -hmm. he was checked out but my OB had said there's gonna be and my OB knows me too like I'm spicy (laughs) I'm aggressive I'm all these things he knows we work together he knows my personality and through my pregnancy I'm like nope I'm not doing that I'm not doing that I'm not doing this I'm not doing that (laughs) um he said there's gonna be a lot of things that are going to happen that your sister is not going to want but I was intubated so I had no say really and Serge should have been the one making the medical decisions for me, but he couldn't. He, like, physically couldn't. And so my sister was said, you know what? You do whatever you have to do to save my sister's life, and I will ask for forgiveness later. Wow. Oh and it's goodness. true. I mean, it's true. It's true. When my, you know, thank God I signed blood consent. You know, like, yeah, give me blood because I didn't think I was going to need it. But I, I, wound it up, I wound up needing 14 units. Oh, my goodness. And... You know, take my spleen. Take that. So they took my spleen. They had to take the tail end of my pancreas because in the rupture, I think the force of the rupture just like 
like a bomb just blew certain things out of its path. And the tail of my pancreas was one of them. And reading through my operative notes, I found out that even after all of that, I was still bleeding and they couldn't find it. I was having retroperitoneal bleeding. So I was bleeding like somewhere through my back, like somewhere behind. And it yeah. turned out that some, some vessels that are like, so if your stomach is like this, I don't know what people can't see what I'm doing right now, but if your stomach is like this, you have blood vessels like on it like this and they got ripped off. So the blood vessels that wrap around your stomach. Yeah. Holy moly. Yeah. Also got ripped off. He came out several more times and was like, this is what happened. Um, this is what's happening now, blah, blah, blah. And then finally he said that he was like, I think, I think she's going to make it. But it was, Alec was born at 420. And I was done with surgery maybe around 830 oh, at night. Oh, my goodness. So I think about what it must have looked like. My coworkers, my night shift girls were surrounded. Oh, they surrounded Serge and my sister in so much love. I don't even know how they worked that night because they just, they, they were all by the OR just waiting for me to come out and they wheeled me out and it was like, you've seen the picture of me intubated. Like, mm -hmm. I can't even believe that was me. Like I look yeah. at it and I know that that's me, but I almost have the separation from it. Like that can't be me. I, ca I cannot have went through that. That cannot have had happened to us. Did you have any family members? Because when I was in the ICU, I had family members and f close friends come and say, I only recognized you by the color of your eyes. Did any of your friends or family say anything like that? No. So we still pretty much had a strict okay. COVID patient policy, visitor policy. So like for labor and delivery, it was... Um, they had went back down to one person and I had my, and a doula. So I had my <laughs> sister as my doula so she could be there. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And then in the ICU, it was only surge. So my coworkers snuck in <laughs> because they were able to badge in. So they, they saw me. So they did see me um, come out, you know, swollen, puffy, intubated, all the things. And mm -hmm. they were around my bed talking to me. Um, and then, saying bye to me as they transferred me to the trauma ICU. Uh, my coworker, Jen, Jen Dixon, she told me actually recently, I didn't know this, but she told me, she was like, I was there when I, going through the short-term disability that I told you about. She was upset about it and we were talking about it. And she said, I was there. I was underneath the drape in the OR. I saw what they did to you. I just kept saying, fight, Nicolette, fight. Wow. You gotta live, fight, fight, fight. And my coworkers, night shift girls went to the ICU to see me and they said, this is why I always take back. I gave up because I struggled with that for a long time that I just like gave up fighting, but they were like, no girl, you did not give up. You were in the ICU. We had to ask the nurse if you needed more sedation because they said I was so active that I was responding to them. I don't remember any of it. But they said, like, even though my eyes were closed, like, I knew something was up. I was squeezing wow. one of the girl's fingers. I was moaning. They asked me, are you in pain? And I, like, shook my head and said yes. And that surge 
said that I responded to him because he was like, do you want me to stay with you or do you want me to go to Alec? And I had always told him, even when Mina was born, go to the baby, go to the mm-hmm. baby. I'm going to be fine. Go to the baby. Um, but this was completely different, right? Alec was in a different part of the hospital and I'm in the trauma ICU and he's like oh being pulled in two directions and he didn't know what to do. And I couldn't even answer him, right? Like I couldn't verbally say, it's okay, Serge, go to Alec. I'm going to be okay. I'm fine. I couldn't do that. I had a tube down my throat, um, you know, on the ventilator helping me breathe. So he said, do you want me to stay with you or Alec? And I apparently shook my head when he said Alec's name and then I started crying. I had tears coming down my eyes. And it didn't matter anyway because for whatever reason, they wouldn't let him stay in the ICU with me, which I found so ridiculous. But NICU, he was able to stay in the NICU. I agree. Um, I think ICU, you should be allowed one person. Yeah, it's, I mean, overnight, yeah. they wouldn't let him stay overnight. And it's like, he, you, you can't sleep here is what he said. And he was like, what sleep? Like, I'm not going to sleep. I want to be with my yeah. wife. And they were like, you can't stay here. And uh, against uh, what what the doctor said, I wound up waking up eight hours after my surgery. So I woke up at like four in the morning, four-ish in the morning. Um, Through that, I had heard certain things. I had breakthroughs where I heard the doctors talking. I heard Serge say, my sister and my mom are coming. I felt a nurse pumping my breasts for me. Um, And I just wanted to say, I wanted to say to her, like, you got to do more suction (laughs) because what she was doing was not going to get anything out. I heard them say magnesium, and I thought to myself, oh, my God, am I on mag? Oh, my God, what happened? Why am I on mag? I'm not going to be able to eat. Like, I was like, all these things going in my head, but I'm, like, laying there, you know, like, unresponsive. Uh, and then I finally, and I, I knew I was intubated because yeah. I felt my throat was hurting. But when I woke up, I was still so confused and alone. Serge wasn't there. I was in this room by myself. It was dark. I was like help right except no such word came out because I was intubated and I was like oh you know like oh my gosh like I can't speak my throat hurts oh my gosh I need the call bell and I could feel like my anxiety I felt claustrophobic I'm like I got like I gotta get out of here like I gotta do something and I'm looking for the call bell and I can't feel it and I go to I'm like okay maybe they put it like over my head and I go to like pick my hand up and it won't move and I'm like I'm restrained I'm restrained and I, then that was it. I like, I, I freaked out. I was in panic mode. I started pulling, trying to make noise, like, you know, like moving the bed or whatever with um, both of my arms. Turns out I didn't realize how hard I was pulling because there are pictures of me in the, in the NICU with bruises on my wrists. Cause I was like so hard, like pulling at those restraints. Um, how am I going to get these people in the room? Like I, I'm not even making enough noise. I can't scream. So I bit down on the tubing which creates pressure and the alarm started going off. So people ran in and I was like, like, help me. And I'm like telling them like, I need something to write. Let me write something like get this out of me. So they give me a pen and a paper. And I remember thinking to myself that I thought I had a stroke because when I went to hold the pen, it was Mm. like, I almost couldn't. And I was having a really hard time. Like, articulating what I was thinking mm. up here onto the paper. So I, I was like, did I have an AFE? Like what? That's crazy. Cause I was thinking to myself, like, I know 
what they say about AFEs. It's like all of a sudden you don't feel good and then boom, you're in cardiac yeah. arrest. Like I was up for a while. So it couldn't have been an AFE, but like why else would I have a stroke? You know, I could have actually with the extreme amount of blood loss that yeah. I had, I could have went into DIC, which is usually what happens, but I didn't. Luckily, I didn't go into DIC, but um, if my OB was like, I don't know how you didn't go into DIC. I don't know either, bro. <laughs> um, but I just started like anxiety. I wrote anxiety. Take the tube out. Da da da. And the doctor came in. He was like, "We should resedate her." And I freaked out. I was like, "No, no, no, please!" Like I was writing down, "Please don't resedate me. I'm awake. Take this tube out. Tell me what happened." Like. I'm awake. Like, do not do this to me. Yeah. So I had to pass like certain tests in order to get extubated. And I did. It took about like 45 minutes. And my default after like they, he, the doctor was telling me what happened while I was intubated. So I literally couldn't say anything. Mm -hmm. I just had to listen. And then I had to wait an additional 45 minutes to ask questions. And they almost resedated me because my vitals were so crazy. The nurse was like, listen, I don't know where it is that you got to go in your head to calm down, but you need to go there because they're going to resedate you. And it's like, you're awake. You have this giant tube down your throat. I'm gagging because it's, I feel I'm so consciously aware of this tube. I'm like, and then every time I gag, I have pain. At this point, I still didn't even realize that I had this giant incision up my stomach. I'm just like C-section. They did everything through that scar you know whatever and then when they actually told me I was like oh my god like I look like I had an autopsy done on me but like upside down so once I was able to talk my default was like humor and sarcasm which is what I typically use throughout my whole life to get through very difficult situations um they the nurses were standing there like do you want us to call somebody and I I said my throat was so sore I was like my husband like I did not sound like myself at all and they were like okay and I was like wait how are my eyebrows that was my first question because Serge was gonna come see me and I wanted to look presentable and they were like oh my god girl your eyebrows look so good we were commenting on it your eyebrows are amazing and we were looking at your nails they were so cute and your toes and all this stuff and like all, all these things and I was like oh uh. you know like just trying to uh dissociate from what happened <laughs> like you know act like everything's fine um they did bring Serge down and it poor guy just looked like I really put him through the ringer, right? Like, he just was, I can't even explain the look that was on his face. Like, his eyes just looked so empty and worried at the same time. And he just, like, did not care. I was like, do you know what I'm going to look like? And he just, like, I don't care. I don't care. It's just a scar. I don't care. And I was like, well, I but whatever. That's so interesting because 
probably not for two years did my husband tell me that he, not that he was bothered by it. I think that he just doesn't like that it's there in regards of, he obviously still loves me, still takes care of me amazingly well, but I think it's just the piece of like, he just doesn't like that I had to go through what I did. It's a reminder. It is. It's a physical reminder. And you know, men deal differently, right? Like, absolutely. Drew does not talk about what happened. He cannot in any way talk about what happened. He is brought right back to the day, the emotions just as high as if it had happened at that second. He mm-hmm. won't talk about it. So, bearing the scar is a literal physical reminder that this is what happened. Yeah. And then he's just so happy that I'm alive. For me, when I start talking about my body and my scar, he's like, don't say that. Because that that scar is the reason why you're alive. So for him, it's so completely different. It's like he's almost, it's almost like he's grateful for that scar where I'm like, I hate this thing. It's so ugly and blah, blah, blah. And all the complications that you know that I had afterwards with it. And I just, you know, I don't even like really look at my body anymore because of it. Meanwhile, if we're in bed together, like he'll kiss my stomach. And it's just a completely different. I, my hope is that I can be grateful for the scar also. Not that I'm not grateful to be alive, but I was so healthy before this happened. Mm-hmm. That scar and the way my body looks is uh, just another piece of that trauma that I haven't fully reconciled with yeah. yet. So hope one day I will feel that way about it the way he does. I My C-section scar, even I know it's like all crazy it reopened when I got home and it just my stomach just looks like it got put back together patchy almost Mm -hmm. um because my stomach was cut into at two different points at two very different points one when there was a baby in it and then the second one there wasn't so Mm -hmm. it's like you know it just it just looks odd but I know that that c-section scar that saved Alex's life if I if it if they would have waited any longer or I was like, no C-section, you know, no, I'm not doing a C-section. You know, my son wouldn't be here. Well, I think that's a really important point to note is these traumatic deliveries. I mean, even if you have a planned C-section, it can still turn out traumatic. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to note that whatever feelings that you have towards your scar, I at one point tried to count my scars and I stopped at 30 because I was like beyond that number. I just, I just don't need to know. And it's just so crazy to think I'd been home for like two months and I had a family member tell me the story about this person. And I don't even remember why the person got the scar, but they uh, had a lot of scars apparently. And were so grateful because the scars meant they survived. And I had been home like, I don't know, a couple weeks, couple months. And I'm like, at this point, I'm not grateful I survived. I'm in a lot of pain every single day. Mm-hmm. I am grateful I get to be a mom and like a wife, etc. But the life that I'm living now is so hard. And it's okay for me to work through those feelings. And if I'm honest, I haven't I still don't love my scars. And I think that, I think that's okay. 
for me personally, it's such a beautiful reminder of the way that God created us in his image Mm -hmm. that I will get back to that image when I go to heaven. For me here on earth, I don't feel like I have to fully accept and love my scars because I have that glory when I get to heaven. Yeah, you're almost kind of, you have to, you're going to transcend this physical body. Exactly. 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 And I think, I think my hope is not here on earth. Obviously, God used all of these doctors, medical professionals, therapists, etc. to save my life. But this is not where my hope is. It's, it's beyond here. And I think when you tell someone you need to be grateful for your scars, like first, you don't get to tell a person what they feel. And second, like at least hear them out and think about why they are where they are. I also think that we need to stop telling people you need to be grateful as if they're not. Like, of course I'm grateful. My son had a 5% chance of survival. And of that 5%, how, what percentage of those babies that live are healthy or actually healthy? My son is healthy. Of course I'm grateful. And I am also these things because being grateful and grieving can yeah. coexist. And I think people, they just don't, either they don't know or they don't understand it. Or I say this so many times, like people, they have the best intentions, right? They ask you how you're doing. They want you to be okay because you not being okay is uncomfortable for them. But I am not in a place where I feel that I am responsible for your comfort. If my trauma, (laughs) if my trauma makes you uncomfortable, then you don't need to be in my life because I can't worry about your feelings about what happened Mm -hmm. to me when I'm still trying to sort out my own feelings on what happened to me. Um, (laughs) anyway. Alec wound up staying in the NICU for six days, miraculously. He was in hypothermia for three days. I didn't get to see him for two because I was refusing pain meds because I'm stubborn. Um, And then all the pain hit me all at once, and it was a lot to catch up with. So when he was rewarmed and I got to see him, I remember, well, the first time I saw him, he was sedated. So um, he was hooked up to all these things and I'm just so grateful I didn't see him intubated because I see those pictures and I cry still yeah um it just hurts me that that he like he didn't even get to breathe on his own when he was born he didn't get to breathe on his own yeah like the most fundamentally human thing to breathe and he didn't even get to do that and yeah. he didn't get to open his eyes and he didn't get to feel my touch because even when I got to go see him on the second day he was sedated, they asked me to wear gloves because my nails were painted. And I was like, this is my son who was ripped out of my body, almost didn't make it, and I can't even touch his skin. And I get it. You know, I work there. I get it. But at the same time, I was just like, I didn't even feel like I was holding my son. I had to hold him on that blue cooling mat, and he had all these wires and it just was so unnatural and so not the way it was supposed to be and 
I remember crying because I knew, like, that's my son. This was just what happened to my son. And, like, he's still, you know, we didn't know. We didn't know which way it was going to go. Is he going to make it? Is he comes off of cooling? Is he going to open his eyes? Is he going to be healthy? Is he going to have brain damage? Like, what? what is our life going to look like after this? Um, yeah. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, is this even my kid? Is this my son? Because he looked nothing like Mina looked like when she was born. Mina had, like, this fierce dark hair and like she was skinny and he was she was 615 and she was like she had rolls but like more like wrinkles because she was skinny and here he is this big boy he wasn't much bigger he was 7'7 but he looked so big in the NICU because everything's so tiny against him yeah and he had this blonde hair and I'm like what (laughs) why does he have blonde hair I mean it's no surprise Mina has blonde hair now Serge has blonde hair but I just didn't think that my son would be born with blonde hair because Mina was born with dark hair so when I saw everything I was like okay is this are we sure this is my son and they're like yeah this is your son I'm like well I mean I wasn't awake and Serge wasn't in the room. So, like, are we 100% sure that this is my son? And that's when I was like, boom, there goes bonding issues, right? I was like, this this can't be my son. Like, he doesn't look like anything like my daughter looked like. And I wasn't awake. It's He's not mine. I felt so bad. Because I knew that was my son. But this trauma, what it does to your brain, and the way it Seriously. tricks you and talks and talks to you and plants these seeds in your head you're like you know it's it's unreal truly I told my husband we needed to do a DNA test (laughs) see so you did you okay I'm not alone in this you're not alone and I like looking back I was like that was ridiculous but your mind makes justifies it your mind justifies it it does because you're like you said you're not awake your husband is not in the room. There are stories of people going home <laughs> with kids that are not theirs. <laughs> so I'm just trying to make sure that he's mine. But, you know, he has this cute, cute butt chin. And that is Serge's chin. So once I saw, like, the butt chin, I was like, okay, I guess he's ours. But I look at baby pictures of him and yeah. I'm just like, I can't. He, whose kid is this? He doesn't look like anybody but Serge's mom said that's what Serge looked like when he was little so I literally gave birth to Serge (laughs) (laughs) that concludes the first part of Nicolette's story tune in next week to hear the second part thank you again everyone for tuning in today we kindly ask you to head over to your favorite podcasting platform to leave us a review it really helps with searchability and finding different podcasts This is your host, Kathy Garrett, and you've been listening to the Birth Trauma Stories podcast, where we're holding space and finding light after perinatal trauma. Bye-bye.